Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. Imagine trying to keep a miniature sun burning in a bottle made of nothing but magnetic fields. That's essentially what a fusion reactor does, and why it's taken almost 100 years for humanity to figure out how to do it. The temperatures at the center of the fusion reactor are 10 times the temperature at the core of the sun. You know, the radius of the sun is about a million miles, whereas the radius of a fusion reactor is a couple of meters. That's plasma physicist John McComb. John is also a listener, and he graciously offered to chat with me about the challenges of building a fusion reactor. He has a research PhD from Cullum Science Center and spent more than a decade working in fusion, studying how plasmas behave in reactors. John is still an expert in plasma physics and nuclear fusion, and that's what he's talking about today. Before we jump into the technical details, let's review what a fusion reactor is and how it works. A fusion reactor recreates the fusion that happens in a star and harnesses that energy to make electricity. There are a few ways to go about building a fusion reactor, but today we're talking about magnetic confinement reactors. In a magnetic confinement fusion reactor, hydrogen gas is superheated by electricity within a magnetic field until it turns into a plasma. Plasma is the fourth state of matter. When atoms get hot enough, they break up into charged ions and free electrons that conduct electricity. In a fusion reactor, magnetic fields are used to contain the heat of the hydrogen plasma until it fuses into helium. This fusion releases a ton of energy, which is then used to turn water into steam, which spins a generator to make electricity. It's simple in theory, but extremely difficult to pull off. The idea for a fusion reactor has been around for a long time. In fact, the Soviets designed the tokamak reactor in the 50s, and that's the design that most of the latest reactors are based on. Imagine a giant metal donut surrounded by tons of electromagnets. These magnets create a field that control and insulate a stream of plasma that flows around inside this donut. These fields contain the heat of the hydrogen plasma until it fuses into helium. ITER, the world's largest fusion reactor being built in France, is a tokamak. So what are some of the main challenges in building a fusion reactor, and why has it taken so long for us to get to this point? Most of the big challenge in nuclear fusion is to keep the plasma hot. Fusion reactions only occur at a certain temperature. So in order to keep a fusion reaction going, you have to maintain the temperature of the plasma, um, above the temperature required for fusion reactions to occur at a reasonable rate. And that requires holding in the heat of the fusion reaction for long enough. And remember, it's super hot. We're dealing with temperatures that are 10 times the temperature of the sun. So you've got this fusion reactor that's 10 times hotter than the sun, a couple of meters away from a vacuum vessel that is, you know, room temperature. And this is, of course, Makes, this is, it's very difficult to maintain those temperature gradients because, of course, heat likes to flow from regions of hot, you know, regions of high temperature to regions of low temperature. So, um, so when you want to maintain really, really high temperatures, you need to insulate uh, those, you know, the, the hot spots 
very, very well. Now, fusion researchers use a magnetic field to insulate the plasma. Uh, but uh, another problem with temperature gradients is that uh, you could temperature you know, that heat gradients can be used to do work. That essentially, um, like that, this is this is how um, how uh, how electricity generation works. That uh, that you have your furnace, and then uh, and then the heat flows from the furnace, and then it spins the turbine, and and that generates electricity. But heat can do work, and that means that the plasma can do work on the magnetic field. And quite often we find that plasmas find all sorts of ways of rearranging a magnetic field to lose heat faster to the uh, to the outside. Um, so plasmas find all sorts of ways to to cool down, and um, and you know sometimes it's in the form of micro turbulence, and and they just get a little bit cooler, and other times it's in the form of a disruption where the insulation is where the magnetic the the magnetic insulation is essentially torn apart, and uh, and uh, and the plasma loses heat very very rapidly as well as current um, to the wall, and that, that's called a disruption. And when that happens, the fusion reaction essentially stops. The, the fusion reaction quite simply stops. Uh, the, the, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why fusion reactions are relatively safe. There's no chain reaction risk in a nuclear fusion reactor because it's so easy to stop the fusion reaction. But of course, um, you want the fusion reaction to continue because you want to generate electricity. So, so uh, you know, essentially, if you have a disruption, then the electric, the, the, fu the fusion reactor will stop generating electricity and you have to start the plasma again. And if you can manage to keep the heat in, it's still very difficult to keep out impurities. Plasma has a tendency to, well, torch stuff. The plasma is like a kind of blowtorch. No matter how long you can find the plasma for, eventually it's going to hit the wall. And when it does, you've got ions from the plasma that are millions of degrees hitting the wall. Now the plasma density is low. It's 100,000 times less dense than the atmosphere. So you're not talking about incredible amounts of heat, and it doesn't melt the wall or anything like that, but it does knock atoms out of the wall, so you've got this constant sprinkling of ions that are millions of degrees hitting the inner wall of the vacuum vessel, and that sputters off atoms from the vacuum vessel. And those supercharged ions can really mess things up. For example, just to give you some idea of how serious a problem impurities can be to heat loss in the plasma, if 1 in 50,000 plasma ions are tin, those 1 in 50,000 tin ions will radiate 10% of the heat in the plasma away, and you have to work hard to contain the heat in the plasma to get a fusion reaction going. So if heat is leaking out, that's not good. Really light elements, however, like lithium or carbon, are not so serious. And if one in five plasma ions, it takes one in five plasma ions to be lithium, or one in 15 plasma ions to be carbon to have the same effect. Those impurities can also really mess up the magnetic fields within fusion reactors. Another really damaging thing that impurities can do is if the impurity distribution is lumpy, they can actually create a lumpy resistivity profile in the plasma. And, and lumpy resistivity causes lumpy currents, and lumpy currents uh, cause disruptions. That, that, that causes you know, instabilities, and it, it can actually break, it can tear up the magnetic insulation and, um, and cause, uh, cause the heat to suddenly get lost to the vacuum vessel. So it's really tough to get a fusion reaction started and to keep it going within a fusion reactor. But once fusion starts, you have another problem to deal with. When you fuse two atoms of hydrogen together to form an atom of helium, a neutron is released. These neutrons can damage the wall of the reactor on an atomic level. It's like Lego, right? A solid material, you've got all these different atoms in a particular arrangement. 
and the arrangement of the atoms to you know creates the material property. So if you think about how um, how ductile or brittle or how conductive a different material is, it's all because of the arrangement of the atoms inside that material. And if the atoms change their arrangement, then the the actual material properties of of you know will change. So what happens with neutrons is if you imagine a snooker table and you smash a ball into the into the you know a white ball into the red ball and you kind of you know you know you you break the balls or whatever that's that's kind of what neutrons do to solids if you can imagine you know the the snooker balls are you know the the triangle of red balls is is the atom and then the the you know neutron is the white ball then you know the neutron causes these cascades now um, you know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't smash up the atom completely it, it uh, only a small amount in fact only a small fraction of um of the uh, atoms of the atoms in the lattice are displaced but but those displacements can have significant effects over a long enough period of time so if you if you're bombard you're just firing neutron after neutron after neutron into a material you're causing you know cascades of of you know of of, uh, of defects and stuff like that so you're you're changing the lattice structure and those changes in the lattice structure will affect the conductivity of the material you know the brittleness of the material uh, things like that and um, and this is actually a, this is the really big problem that uh, that it's not that I mean it's not undo it, I mean the stresses in a fusion reactor are not unheard of that we've engineered things to to be you know we've engineered things to be you know to take those kind of stresses uh, before uh, the, the issue is that uh, that when you engineer materials to maintain large stresses uh, the properties of those materials are very important so if you have so if you um if you do, you know carefully develop your reactor to maintain you know pretty pretty intense stresses and then you bombard it with neutrons you're going to be changing the properties of those materials now now of course um again these these things have been simulated um but but it's it's quite challenging to to really kind of work out what the you know it, you know how the materials, how all these the material properties of all these different components will change as as neutrons hit them and, and stuff like that over the lifetime of the reactor. Engineers can simulate neutron damage, but they won't really know how neutrons affect the reactor until the reactor has been running for quite a while. Another challenge for engineers is dust. Remember how the plasma sort of blowtorches the inside of the reactor? That creates a lot of dust and that dust could contain tritium, which is a radioactive version of hydrogen. That tritiated dust could pose risks for reactor workers. The atoms that get sputtered off the inside of the vacuum vessel uh, get, uh, you know, that go into the plasma, they turn into, turn into dust. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the mechanism is, maybe somebody knows, but, uh, but yeah, dust is definitely something that, that plasma produces. And, and yes, if uh, in a, in a in a in a hypothetical fusion reactor, um, there's there's a possibility that um, that uh, there could be a lot of dust contained in the that there could be a lot of tritium contained in the dust. Yes. For the first ten years of operation, ITER will be using deuterium or just plain hydrogen for its fusion reactions. After that, they'll switch to a deuterium-tritium reaction, which is much more efficient. So during the ten years when they're running deuterium, they'll get an idea of how much tritium. Uh, would be contained, uh, you know, they, they get a, they get an idea of how much tritium would be in the dust, and and I presume they're probably going to work really hard to make sure that uh, that 
that there's not too much here dust produced because because it, 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 it does potentially pose a hazard, especially for people who want to do maintenance work on the machine or something like that. Controlling the dust in a nuclear fusion reactor will be a challenge, but there are ways to do it. Something called a liquid first wall could reduce the dust to almost nothing. Imagine an ultra-thin wall of liquid flowing around the inside of the fusion chamber. This wall would catch any of the dust before it becomes airborne. A liquid first wall, which is just you know, maybe less than a millimeter thick, um, would, instead of producing dust, it would produce droplets. So when those droplets uh, land on the rest of the material, they kind of fuse with it, so you wouldn't get this kind of dust in the, in the reactor. So if you had a liquid first wall, that would uh, significantly reduce you know, even the small amount of radiation that, uh, that say, a vacuum vessel breach might cause. So, so even the issue of dust is, is something that there is you know, potential solutions to you know, which can be mitigated. But the amount of radioactive dust in a fusion reactor is nowhere near the amount of dust that we've already seen during disasters like Chernobyl. Yeah, I mean, the amount of uh, dust that a graphite fire would produce, I mean, that's what happened during Chernobyl. The, the, graphite, the graphite moderator caught fire and then... Uh, and of course, the graphite moderator was bombarded by neutrons, by huge amounts of neutrons from the uranium, uh, the uranium, you know, rod, the uranium pellets. And um, yeah, I mean, then it caught fire, and just you know, all the radioactive graphite kind of came up as smoke. I mean, that's that's a lot more dust than you know, even a dusty fusion reactor would uh, would contain. Another challenge with fusion reactors is something called Wigner energy. Wigner energy builds up in materials that have been bombarded by neutrons. It's kind of hard to explain, so I'll let John take over once again. If you imagine like a Rubik's cube, right, and uh, and, you know, and and every and each of the cubes in the Rubik's cube is like an atom, and you take one of the atoms and you kind of stick it in between the other, you know, stick it, you know, squeeze it in between the corners of the other atoms, uh, and you got like this hole. So that that so there's there's all. So essentially, you have these atoms that are kind of when when you have lattice defects, you have these atoms that are kind of squashed too tightly um, around other atoms, and then you have these kind of holes in the lattice where there's kind of where there's kind of gaps in the atomic structure, and uh, and that's in a higher energy state than um, than the than, than the the unperturbed atom, the 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 the, uh, the lattice without defects. So if those atoms start kind of vibrating, the uh, the the atoms that are kind of squidged in. In, into the other atoms kind of find their way back into the holes. If you heat up a material that has sustained a certain amount of neutral damage, it anneals and, and, that, uh, and that reduces some of the lattice defects. So uh, when that happens, it releases Wigner energy. Now, the annealing process is actually something that's been done in a controlled manner, and, um, and I think reactors are, are, are deliberately heated up to anneal them sometimes. So, um, so it can be done in a controlled way. But uh, but yeah, so if, if you if if you have um, a material that's been bombarded by neutrons and it's built up all these lattice defects, uh, then if you heat up that material, it can release more heat. There's the potential for a kind of uh, for a heat for a release of heat to create a release of more heat. Again, you can kind of you can regularly anneal um, the materials in the fusion reactor to reduce the amount of Wigner energy that, that gets released. Uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, the the Release of Wigner energy is, is one of the things that called the, caused the Windscale Fire. The Windscale Fire in 1957 was Great Britain's worst atomic accident. 
the plant had a controlled process for releasing Wigner energy in the graphite rods. During one of these procedures, one of the rods, instead of cooling after the Wigner release, continued to gain heat. It eventually caught fire and the entire reactor burned for more than two days. The amount of radioactive material released was substantial, but nowhere near what was released during the Chernobyl incident. If you're not careful about it, it has the potential to cause some um, sudden releases of heat that can that can do damage. And of course, the uh, and of course another thing is of course, um, in, in if you've got superinductors and you've got Wigner energy, uh, if you've got if the neutron damage has caused you know a buildup in Wigner energy and you've got superinductors as well, then then a sudden release of heat might potentially. Uh, it could potentially kind of saturate the ability of the coolant systems to keep the superinductors cool. So that could, so a release of Wigner energy, you know, you know, in a badly designed fusion reactor, a release of Wigner energy could, could stimulate a thermal quench in the superinductors. A thermal quench means that the superconductors get too warm to, well, superconduct. The magnetic field would collapse and the fusion reaction would stop. So far, we've been talking about the challenges of making a nuclear fusion reactor. But once it's made, could it be used by a rogue state to, I don't know, create more nuclear weapons? Essentially, there are two ways to make nuclear bombs. Uh, one is by um, enriching the levels of uranium-235. Uh, so, so uranium, natural uranium, uh, 1%, about 0.7% of atoms in natural uranium are uranium-235, and the remaining 99.3% of the atoms in uranium are uranium-238. Now the the two ways of making and now in an atom bomb it's it's you know it's more like I guess 80 or 90 percent may, maybe more are uranium 235 so you have to do a lot of enriching but in an atom bomb one way of doing it is to separate out the uranium 235 from the uranium 238 and and create enriched uranium which is maybe 90 percent uranium 235 highly enriched uranium the, the second, second way is to bombard uranium 238 with neutrons and turn uh, you know some of the atoms in the uranium-238 into plutonium-239. Now, plutonium-239 can then be chemically separated from the uranium-238. So if you have a neutron source, you can just chemically separate uh, the plutonium-239 from uranium-238. So probably what you want to do if you wanted to use a fusion reactor to make you know, weapons-grade plutonium or whatever, is you would get natural uranium, you'd put it in the blanket of the fusion reactor for a little bit, and then, and then take it out and then chemically separate out the plutonium, then put the uranium back in the blanket, chemically separate out the plutonium and, and so on and so forth. Uh, essentially, um, it's easier to chemically separate plutonium from uranium than to separate uranium-235 from uranium-238 because uranium-235 has identical uh, chemical properties to uranium-238, whereas plutonium has, dis you know, has, has different chemical properties. Now, terrorists couldn't do that. Um, so if, if, if you have a, a well-behaved state, um, nuclear fusion is actually more proliferation resistant to terrorists uh, because there's no uranium in a nuclear fusion reactor. But, uh, but yeah, if a rogue state wanted to use nuclear, you know, could use nuclear fusion reactors to produce plutonium from natural uranium and, and just with natural uranium and, um, and a nuclear fusion reactor, you could make, you know, atom bombs without needing any enrichment facility. So there is some danger that a fusion reactor could be used to create weapons-grade plutonium, but fission reactors can be used to do the same thing, and there are thousands of those on the planet. Also, John made a great point about fusion reactors being really resistant to terrorist attacks. 
Unlike a fission reactor, if you try to blow it up, it would just stop. A fission reactor, on the other hand? Well, look what happened with Chernobyl and Fukushima. But what about nuclear waste? Fission reactors create a lot of nuclear waste that is really difficult to store and eventually get rid of. Fusion reactors, on the other hand, don't. Again, I'll let John explain. Theoretically speaking, a fusion reactor, a fusion reaction doesn't have to produce any net waste. So in a fusion reaction, you have tritium and deuterium, and then they combine to, to create helium and a neutron. The helium is not radioactive, and the neutron then goes out into a lithium blanket, and the lithium blanket, and when it hits, and then when it hits the lithium, it turns the lithium into helium and tritium. So then you take the tritium atom and you put it back in the plasma. You take the tritium and you put it back in the plasma, and then you turn it into deuterium. And so then you react it with deuterium to produce helium and neutrons. So so the net result of the the closed loop fusion system is to turn uh, is to turn deuterium and lithium into uh, into helium. Uh, and deuterium is non-radioactive. <clears throat> lithium is non-radioactive and helium is also non-radioactive. So theoretically speaking, uh, if you've got everything just perfect, you actually wouldn't produce any radioactive waste at all uh, from nuclear fusion. Now in practice, there's other things the neutrons are gonna hit. So the neutrons are gonna hit stuff, you know, other than the uh, than the lithium, and, uh, and, and in the process, they're gonna make those things radioactive. Now in, um, so, but, but it's, it, you know, it's a relatively, you know, you've got less radiation produced than in a fission reactor. And another thing is that uh, when nuclear, when uranium atoms split, they don't always split in the same way. So when uranium atoms split, they, they, all these different uranium atoms are splitting in different ways. And they're essentially producing every element under the sun in radioactive form. So fission, fission fragments, fission products uh, contain pretty much every element in the, radio, in the periodic table. That's very complicated to chemically process, and they're they're emitting all sorts of different, uh, you know, gamma radiation, beta radiation, you know, everything. Uh, when fusion neutrons hit the, you know, the material in the fusion reactor, you know, you say you got your component that's made of one material or maybe two materials, and then the neutron hits it and maybe turns one of those materials radioactive. So you've got you got maybe like one one particular radioisotope, one particular chemically distinct radioisotope contained within a within a material that contains you know one or two other atoms so it's it's much easier to chemically separate the radioisotopes it, it, uh, from from the from irradiated fusion components compared to fission components and there's also less of them produced so fusion reactors are a lot cleaner than fission reactors and they use a much more readily available source of fuel in fact we have tons of the two things that you need in a fusion reactor lithium and seawater the current lithium reserves are sufficient to uh, supply civilization with fusion energy for a thousand years. And and another thing is, of course, uh, if you go down in purity, you go up in quantity. So um, so given the value of lithium in fusion, it would probably be possible to mine a whole lot more lithium than 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 are contained in known reserves because it would just be so valuable. Um, there's enough deuterium in seawater to supply all of our fusion needs for something like a million years, I think. That essentially, if we if we do get fusion to work, it, it it would be it would supply all of civilization's energy needs, and you know, energy is is what civilization needs. Energy is essentially the 
the thing that powers civilization. It's it's absolutely essential that we we constantly maintain an energy supply, or, or else uh, or else everything grinds to a halt. Um, and and like I say, it, and it doesn't require any CO2 to be, to be emitted, so it allows you to produce all the energy you want, and it doesn't cause global warming. Uh, so that's that's a really big win. And that's why we've been spending so much time and effort trying to get fusion to work. Of course, there are other green energy technologies, some that may actually be even better than fusion. Yeah, I, I think solar is probably the most promising one, to be honest. I, I think I think solar is is probably more promising than nuclear fusion, in fact. But, uh, you know, we already spend more money on solar than we spend on nuclear fusion. That, that We already spend more money building solar panels than is spent on researching fusion reactors. So nuclear fusion is is one answer. And um, it's it's probably worth uh, it's probably worth investigating it anyway. Uh, although solar power, I think, is more promising. I mean, it's it so, solar power is currently being. I mean, solar installations are currently increasing by about thirty percent every year. So although solar power is only producing about one percent of our electricity, in uh, you know in a couple of decades, if if the sort of exponential rate of growth can be maintained, that could change a lot. But like I say, we, the, the amount of money that's put into solar power is uh, is already much larger than nuclear fusion. So if you if you if you directed the money going into fusion research into solar energy, it wouldn't actually make much of a difference because it wouldn't be because because uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't really it's it's a small percentage of the amount of money that's that solar energy is already receiving. The ITER reactor is set to go online in 2025 and should be switching over to the more efficient tritium reaction in 2035. MIT's Spark reactor is also slated to go online in 2025. It sounds like a wild science fiction fantasy, but it actually does seem like we'll have fusion power in our lifetime. Will that give us unlimited amounts of energy and solve all of humanity's problems? Well, probably not, at least not right away. But it's a huge step forward. If you want to learn more about fusion reactors, go check out an excellent article on HowStuffWorks.com by Craig Freudenrich. It breaks down all the different kinds of fusion reactors that are possible and how they work. Tremendous thanks to John McCone for guest starring on this episode. Go check out his website, JohnMcCone.com. There's a ton of great stuff there, including articles about everything from universal basic income to the dangers of sex robots. Go check it out. If you want to learn more about me, you can at DustinDriver.com. Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.